Thank you for listening to the Ace Jewelers podcast. This is an exclusive audio-only episode of the podcast series The Art of Collecting Wristwatches by Ace Jewelers. In this series, we interview wristwatch collectors all over the world. We want to know what makes them tick. Three, two, one. Rob, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Alan. How are you? I am very well. I am uh, I'm a little cold. It's freezing here in Dresden, literally. Yeah, it's um it's cold in Amsterdam, not freezing yet, but uh I can imagine it's cold over there. I wanted to thank you uh so much for sitting down with me for the second episode of our new series, our audio only podcast called The Art of Collecting Wristwatches. Um you have been in the industry quite some time. You're trained as a watchmaker. Um, you worked for several brands. I had the honor to work with you while you were at Nomos. We had epic times together. Today, you're the managing editor of Fratello Watches. Um, I had the honor to sit down with you for several podcasts on your platform. For those that uh, haven't seen the Ace This Live yet, we've recorded an amazing video interview with Rob as well. But today... I just want to talk to the watch guy, Rob, the collector, Rob. And um, uh, I'm, I, I want to try to keep this at 30 minutes, which is super difficult for both of us since we're chatterboxes. So I'm just going to jump right in. How did you get into watches, Rob? Well, um, it started a long time ago, actually. You're quite right. And thank you, by the way, for such a lovely introduction. And the pleasure was all mine for um, our podcast that we did together for Fratello. Um, I have been working in the watch industry now in and around it, at least for the past 17 years. I think this will be my 18th year in watchmaking. So a long time, more than half my life. Um, but my fascination with watches began a long time before that. It goes all the way back to me being, I think, seven years old. And, uh, I was quite a theatrical child, shall we say? I wasn't particularly expressive. Um, I wasn't the extrovert that you know me to be today, quite the opposite, in fact, but I did have aspirations to be an actor. That was what I always wanted to do when I was a kid. Uh, I thought I would be a Hollywood movie star. I suppose there's still time, but um, I need to get a little bit better at acting and a little bit better looking and then maybe grow an inch or two. That might help. Although being short has worked out for Tom Cruise, all right, so who knows? I might have a turn. <laughs> you are, you are, you are world famous in the watch industry. I so. really thought you were just yeah. going to say, "Yeah, you are, you are, you are short." Yeah, I, I am. No, quite no, short. no, you're, yeah. not, you're not that short. Well, you it's know, not the first, it's not the first thing that we notice when we see you. It's my big feet because they get into the room before the rest of me does. That's for sure. Big, yeah, big yeah. clown feet. Uh, anyway, I was always um, keen to have the lead role in the Christmas play at primary school, elementary school for our American listeners. And I was acting one year, I guess it must have been the Christmas play of 1992, as Roger Redhat, who was the main character in a series of books called The Village with Three Corners. At least I think that's what the series was called. That's what they where they lived. And there was the other characters like Billy Blue Hat and Jennifer Yellow Hat or whatnot. And we had this Christmas story where um, the kids from The Village with Three Corners had to help Santa get his delivery done on time. And there was one particular scene 
uh, in which I had to look at my wrist and look at my watch and slap my head in shock and horror at the fact we were behind schedule. And uh, my teacher at the time, um, she suggested, because as a child, I had no watch, that I draw a watch on a piece of paper, color it in and cut it out and wear it. Um, And being the prima donna that I was, I uh, tossed my scarf over my shoulder, stormed out of a classroom, point blank refused um, to do such a, a trivial, childish thing, claiming, I believe, that I was a method actor of some description. <laughs> and that, and that, I, I mean, I was a real handful as a kid, you know. I mean, uh, I've calmed down quite a lot. I'm a, a little less emotional now than I was then. But um, yeah, I uh, I needed to find a watch from somewhere. And luckily, my, my best friend at the time, a guy called James, he, uh, he'd recently collected enough caps from tubes of Smarties, the little... Uh, sugar-coated chocolates that we all used to be addicted to and sent them off to the Smarties Corporation with a postal order for two ninety nine to receive his very own digital Smarties watch. And he was the only kid in our class that had a watch and he kindly offered to uh, lend it to me for this scene. And so I had this Amazing. thing. You probably remember these things. Like they, they were really common promotional items in the 90s. Like the, so- of course. But it's amazing how these little things at a young age made such an impact, right? Well, I became addicted to this uh, this idea of like uh, design within a small space. And okay, maybe the Smarties watch, which <laughs> it was one of those ones. It was like an electric blue plastic thing. It looked like a swatch, about 38 mil, I guess, quite large for a, for a child's watch. But it had like a dial that was was just it was a circle and it was just loads of colorful smarties and then there was just a tiny little digital window you know a little rectangular window at the bottom yeah, yeah, yeah. with the time on it and uh i mean it's more accurate than my omega as, as i'm gonna say you know it's, it's a quality watch that smarties watch it was uh, yeah. well worth the five packs of smarties and the 299 postal order that it cost um and i'm sure james still wears it now um in, in, in good health i hope um <laughs> and uh, I, I I loved this watch. I became fascinated with like um, you know the restrictions of watch design, and uh, I think that is uh, that is why I became so hooked on it. And then when I was eleven, my dad bought me a Casio F ninety four W when I started secondary school, and that was my first my first watch, which unfortunately I don't have anymore. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's been a spiral. Um, <laughs> Vicious, so, so from there on, so from from uh, from elementary school and from high school, how did you get into watchmaking, and how did you become a watchmaker? So I guess I was I was about seventeen when my uh, girlfriend at the time had started working for H Samuels, which is a chain jewelers in the UK. It's owned by the Signet Group. Um, I can never remember which ones they have in their portfolio. I think it's Ernest Jones and. Maybe Leslie Davis. I, I can never remember. There's there's like a trio. Yeah. Uh, these three tiers of uh, of jewelers. So H. Samuels was the bottom level. And H. Samuels uh, dealt with like a lot of cheap nine-carat gold earrings, um, cubic zirconas, that kind of thing, uh, and house ornaments. Okay, so they had a lot of porcelain house ornaments. You know, people don't really go into this stuff so much anymore. But back then, we were in the tail end of it being popular. So she started working for H Samuels and I needed a summer job. So she said, why don't you uh, apply? And she was, she was friendly with the manager and he gave me a position there. And very quickly uh, I became the, the watch guy and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing air quotes here. I'm saying in, in inverted commas, I was the watch guy. You know, there was no, um, no real responsibility, no watchmaking at all. I did strap changes. I took care of the displays and I did the occasional battery change, 
which once ended in disaster. I remember completely destroying somebody's watch. I had no idea how to use um, a case back closer. I think, you know, normally a case back closer has a, has a little um, chuck and you put, put the watch in there, um, face down. You really want the, the weight, uh, the bearing of the, the force to be on the, the case itself, the case edge. And I had this chuck. It was way too small. Must have been about a centimeter wide or 15 centimeters for a lady's watch. Um, yeah. and I'd used it on like a 34, 35, 38 millimeter man's watch. And I uh, tried to put this case back, back on. I completely shattered the glass and in a bad way as well. I think I pushed most of the glass into the dial. Luckily, the watch um, wasn't too expensive. It wasn't something special. I think it was just a um, all gold Rolex day date. Um, had previously <laughs> been in immaculate condition. Uh, completely destroyed it. Um, so that was embarrassing. Uh, no, it was just a cheap battery rotary or something or other. I think we had one in stock. Yeah. Gave him a new one, but oof. Um, it went from there. Uh, I, I worked in um, H. Samuels and in other jewelers part-time uh, up until I was uh, about 20 years old. And then um, I was working as a, a clothing designer, a little company in Sheffield, uh, while I was doing my degree in archaeological science, which was um, three interesting years. Um I decided I didn't want to be an archaeologist, which had never really been the plan. I was just curious about what I might learn studying a degree in that field. Mm -hmm. And I decided that I wanted to do something with my hands, something creative, and I liked liked making clothes. Um, And I thought maybe I could um, be on a – take on a tailoring course, or maybe I could be a watchmaker. So uh, those were the two options. I researched watchmaking. I found out about Langer and Zona, and I asked them to send me a catalog, which they did. And it's still one of my most treasured possessions. Uh, I absolutely love it. I still have that very first catalog that inspired me to take it up as a career. And thereafter, um, I applied to the British School of Watchmaking. And it took me a few years to get accepted, but I was persistent and tried very hard. And eventually, I got in. And here we are, many years later. And what is it that that attracted you to watches? So in that journey of play, working for H. Samuel, and more specifically, you currently live in Germany, you used to work for a German watch brand, also from Glashütte. Why a lange Söhne? Well, at the time, um, why not? I had no idea of the context uh, of the watch industry. I didn't know where Lange was positioned in it. I didn't realize that they were right at the top. Um, I mean, I, I, was it I, the design that attracted you? Uh, yeah, it was the design of the movements. I was fascinated by them. I found the aesthetics of the dial um, completely, completely bewitching. And I still do. I still rank Lang as my, my favorite brand um, overall, oh, yeah. I believe. Um, and I don't think that's um, because of my uh, initial exposure to them. I don't think it has anything to do with it whatsoever. I just think it really piqued my interest. It was what I like. And um, I've, I've fluctuated greatly. Um, in terms of likes and dislikes over my years in the industry, but Langer has always remained a constant icon for me. So, um, yeah, that was uh, that was that was the the beginning of it. All. Interesting, very interesting, and um, it's it's fun to see how the journey starts and where it takes you. Right, also in the likes and dislikes. And yeah. if you look at specifically what makes you tick about watches is it the design the history the movement a particular complication a style or a narrative well you know for me actually um despite being um a wasp watchmaker um i really do come at it more from a design perspective and mm-hmm. going right back to the smartest watch 
<laughs> what what really engaged me was the restrictions of the design. What what you had to you had to adhere to. Watches are not like art exclusively, nor are they uh, like a purely functional item. They're somewhere in between. They're they're both things. They have a purpose. They have to delineate time to to the wearer. Um, that's important. But they also also have to be um, artful. They have to be beautiful. Watches have long ceased, long since ceased to be necessary. You know, they are um, anachronistic objects, really. And so the reasons why we wear them has to go beyond their pu- pure function. Um, and so trying to do something new, trying to be creative within such a strict set of parameters is what makes me tick. That is what really, really gets me. And I love it when people are able to do that. You know, we have thousands and thousands of watches. I've written thousands of articles on watches I've had that mm-hmm. pass through my hands. And yet there's still ways that people can look at this industry sideways and come up with something new. And that, that fascinates me. It's amazing, right? It's, uh, it's crazy. It's such a small world and uh, it's so diverse and fast. Um, so zooming in on that, um, do you have a particular focus when you yourself are collecting watches, your own collection? Would you like to share a bit more about that? Um, the truthful answer is no, I don't really have a focus. So some people will just collect Speedmasters, an expensive hobby, a a laudable one for sure. But, um, no, some people will just collect digital watches. Some people will just collect Mecha Quartz chronographs. I don't know. Mm -hmm. There are no Mm -hmm. brackets for me. There is no price bracket. There is no, um, design, um, style i'm not just collecting pilot watches or dive watches i do have a propensity um to lean towards the dive and adventure style watches um but i have plenty of dress watches i have a mixture of quartz automatic mm-hmm. manual mecha quartz everything and you're a bit like me we're literally all over the place <laughs> well i think if it's good okay if there's one unifying factor is that i think it's good and that's not something no, listen there is no there is no good or bad and this podcast is here to um, share passion, knowledge. Um, uh, I assume the majority of the listeners are collectors themselves. Maybe they're aspiring collectors. Um, I, I also want to finish off this podcast by asking you if you have a final tip to somebody who's new to the art of collecting wristwatches. But um, there's no good or bad. Um, if somebody just has one niche, um, it's interesting to, to, to know why People collect watches. We're all a bit crazy. And you're definitely crazy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So that's interesting. And maybe we can zoom in and maybe you would like to share some of the watches in your current collection and tell us why you got them and why you will never let go of them. Okay. So my current collection is probably about 70 pieces or so. I'm not entirely sure. I uh, recently bought some new watch cases, which I hoped would help me keep track of a number and I've already outgrown them. That was a week ago. So I have a serious problem to say the least. Um, There are a lot of watches in that collection, however, that I would happily pass on, either give away or trade or maybe donate to uh, our Fratello readers at some point. Um, I have I have pieces that I accrued in my former career writing for different magazines that I was given as a watch mm-hmm. journalist that I, I had no real desire for. Um, uh, it was just easier for me to hold on to them. So I think that over the next few months and the next few years, I will, I will try and um, reduce my collection, but there are pieces that will never leave. So, mm-hmm. ooh, 
my first Speedmaster, um, which I bought last year in January on the 15th, um, a week or so after starting for Fratello, uh, that one will never leave my collection. Uh, I, I thought about it because it's appreciated in value by about 25% in the 12 months since I bought it. So it's, it's tempting to move on from it. But RJ advised me when I started writing for Fratello that um, you should never sell your first Speedy. And that was the first one. I, I've never really made a habit of buying watches to commemorate life events either. And I know that's a thing people do. And I quite like it. I think it's a justification. Uh, so that one for me is the first example of me doing that. And the first Omega Speedmaster given my role for Fratello, a role that I hope to hold for many more years uh, because it's, it's great fun working for this team and uh, you know, being able to share our thoughts and feelings with such a wide and active community. Um, that one will never go. That's very special to me. Um, it has already been on, I think, four different straps slash bracelets since I've owned it because I like to move them around. Um, so it's ever-changing, but it's, uh, it's a constant in the collection. Beyond that, there's the Breitling Aerospace uh, Everest Skydive Limited Edition from, I think, 2009, if memory serves correctly. Um, that is probably the last watch I would I would let leave my collection because um, when I graduated from the British School of Watchmaking, my friend Aaron Shirley lent me his Breitling Aerospace to wear to graduation because I had nothing other than the watch I'd made during my course uh, to wear, and I, and I really wanted to wear something fancy. And that really stuck with yeah. me, and I searched for that watch for years. I got it at a crazy good price. Um, just over a year ago from AMJ Watches in, in uh, I think, Newark in Nottingham, Sheer over in England. That will never leave. Um, my two Laventure watches that I I've, I first backed on Kickstarter and then followed up um, with a second purchase uh, when Clement Gaud, the founder, released his uh, Sumerine model. I love those watches. I think they're the best example of um, a new independent micro indie brand, however you want to style it um i think they're amazing uh, there's only 50 pieces of each in the world and i'm glad to own the numbers that i do uh they will never ever leave um bum, bum, bum. what's next on the list of never ever leaving my collection is that enough for you do you want something else that's it's definitely enough it's definitely okay. enough and you can share whatever you want and uh it's uh at your own discretionary to share what you want so leaping from what you have to your grail watch is that an A Lange Cern? I mean, it has to be, doesn't it? It has to be. Do you have one? Do you have one today? Oh. So let me let me like so Grail watches. This is yes. a thing that is is it's uh, it's it's moved on from the singular. You know, people always used to talk about your Grail, and now we talk about yeah. Grail. We got greedy, so I have a few yeah. Grail. Um, like for example, the Chapek Antarctic. I will own one of those one day. Um, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um. But let me let me rephrase the question. My exit watch, okay? So the one that I, if I bought, I don't know if I'd ever be able to buy another watch again in my life, would be from Lange. Yeah, it would have yeah. to be. Yeah. Okay, so when I was a kid, I always wanted rose gold watches with white dials. And I was obsessed with a moon phase. I've really gone off the moon phase complication now, almost entirely, but I still love what Lange does with it. And especially the day-date model. So... Mm -hmm. Not day date, sorry. The, the day night, the day night indicator with the the shifting blue moon phase disc, that is gorgeous. Um, I hated white gold when I was growing up. Hated it. I thought, why have white gold instead of steel? I'm starting to get it now. Starting to understand. I'm spending too much time with RJ, um, and it, it is like his gold finger vibes, are like really rubbing off on me, or gold member vibes, maybe a bit more appropriate. Um, definitely rubbing off on me. It's awful. Um. 
Now I would say that my my exit watch is probably a Langer one moon phase day night indicator white gold case black dial. I've moved Stunning. over to the dark side. It's gorgeous. I tried that one on a red bar event in Houston. I was yeah. uh, I was hosting this event for Nomas. It was a cool event, actually, really cool event in Houston. Uh, I don't know the city very well, but I really enjoyed um, visiting that crowd. Um, they were super passionate guys, and they had they had a Langer in store. And I strapped it on. I was like, "Oh goodness me, that is something special." So yeah, I'll go for that. That's my that's my nice. Goal. And from daydreaming going to reality, what's your next watch? Well, you know that depends on the pandemic because I bought a Rolex about, um, okay. about three months ago. Um, first one, first one. Yeah, it's an Oyster Day Precision. Um, yeah, got it. Congratulations, amazing. Well, thanks. I haven't seen it yet though. So RJ. Uh, sent me a message um, and he was like, oh yeah, I got a friend who's selling a Rolex, sent me a picture of it and it's a 34 mil black dial, relatively decent condition dial and hands, all original, case is a bit battered, bracelet's a bit knackered, but not beyond the uh, um, refinishing skills of a talented watchmaker. And it was a good price and I always wanted a Rolex, I wanted a, I wanted to feel what it was like to own a Rolex and I thought this is a mm-hmm. nice kind of timeless design. I got small wrists, I sometimes wear 31 millimeter watches, I sometimes wear 56 millimeter watches. So, you know, 34 was not intimidating for me. I thought, yeah, sure, I can pull that off. No problem, look nice with a suit, with a shirt. So I sent him the money and said, just buy it for me and hold it. I'll be over to pick it up in The Hague in September, October. I had a trip booked in September, cancelled. I had a trip booked in October, cancelled. I had two booked in November, cancelled, cancelled. And I have one planned for the middle of January. And (laughs) at the moment, it ain't looking good. So um, maybe that counts as the next watch to enter my my watch box. But the next one I will buy, or the one that I will exchange money for, will likely be the Snoopy 3. Um, I put an order in for it. We don't know when it's going to be delivered. I'm not putting any pressure on Omega to deliver it to me soon. Uh, I want one, but I'm not in a rush. So it could be, could be a month, could be 10 months, could be a year, could be two years. Let, let them sort sort out the uh, the other guys on the street that desperately want this watch. Uh, I can wait, but yeah, I think that'll be it. Thanks for sharing. On topic, are you an ad hoc buyer? Are you a strategist? Do you strategize, save up and go for the kill? Or what kind of buyer are you? Huh. Um, Do you go I, down a risk list or a checklist of a wish list that you have or? So I have, this, I have this kind of like, um, I have a wish list that's existed for many, many years now. And it has a few pieces on there that it, it beggars belief I've not added them to collection because it isn't about price. These these ones on the list that they're longstanding desires. And I've bought watches that are more expensive than them. Um, I've bought watches that are far cheaper, but you know, to, yeah together would make up that price um i am a bit i would say i'm opportunistic more than anything else so the things i regret most early in my collecting career was being too shy to pull the trigger being being too um thoughtful being too conservative and waiting and thinking i'll get another chance to buy something um and another thing that really struck me is that as soon as i become aware of something as soon as i know that I want something, chances are other people uh, have been inspired by something I've been inspired by. And, you know, there's something in the air. You know, everybody comes up with like vampire stories or wizard stories Mm -hmm. or elf stories at the same time. And Hollywood is suddenly awash with the same kind of movie for like three or four years because everybody's doing it. 
it's in the public consciousness. And oftentimes, I have a slight advantage because I'm the managing editor of Fratello, so I get to read the articles before we push them live. But often I'm reading the stuff that my guys have written and I'll see something in this and I'll be like, you know what, I want one of those. I'm going to go find one. So case in point, two weeks ago, maybe three weeks, Mike Stockton, he wrote an article about the best Japanese watches he'd acquired in 2020. And in this list was, uh, was uh, a Casio surf timer, surf, mm-hmm. surfing timer, I think. I read and, that article. Oh my goodness. The dial of that thing was amazing. I thought, the colors, this looks like a, this looks like a Casio Navi timer. I thought, I have to have one of these things. And I text Mike and I said, you know, what should I be paying for something like this in your opinion? And he said, you know, you get it for a couple of hundred bucks if you're lucky in decent condition. So straight away, I dived on eBay. Um, I, I knew I only had like a couple of days window before the article went live and uh, the rest of the Fratelli got, got wind of this. And uh, I, I searched and lo and behold, there was a, a very nice nice guy. I had a, a bit of back and forth with him over eBay messaging in Belgium selling not just this surfing timer, but a Casio Skywalker as well. Mm. And similar, you know, same kind of setup, just a different dial display. So I... I bid on them. Um, he had to buy it now on the Skywalker at 220. I was less bothered about that. I was really all about the surfing timer. And I would have gone up to about 400. I would have gone double what Mike said uh, was the, what I should be paying for it, simply because the condition of these things was absolutely through the roof. I couldn't believe it. Like, they're box fresh. Every single other one that I found had a duffed up bezel. You know, the, the crystal was scratched to hell. Mm-hmm. The strap was worn out. Um, you know, like it was a rubber strap, so it either gone shiny or like the text had worn off. These two were both amazing. I got, them, I got them both for about 400 in total. Um, amazing. Amazing, amazing things. So opportunism is really my way forward. And just being not being afraid to pull the trigger and accepting that by doing that, you were... Uh, you're going to lose sometimes, but that's okay. Yeah, amazing. Um, you already mentioned that A. Lang has a special place in your heart, your first book. It's your exit watch. Do you have any other favorite brands or brand? Uh, yeah, I do. One of them has sat on my list for many years, and I still don't own it, although I'm going to change that in 2021, and that's Schofield, Schofield Watch Company, yeah. um, run by a, a man who I'm, I'm glad to be able to call a friend now, Giles Ellis. He was an, an idol of mine when I was... Uh, training as a watchmaker when i was a young journalist working for a blog to watch i got to meet him at salon qp and uh i'm not really sure how we struck up um a friendship but over over the years we we talked more and more and more and now it's a, a great relationship um i love everything he does um beyond watchmaking as well his pens his uh leather goods uh his accessories like whistles uh torches watch mm-hmm. cases you name it like the, the guy's a designer first and foremost you know the watchmaker yeah, i love his of, watches as well they're amazing there's something special so i'd say yeah, they're clean but two watches yeah exactly and um they've got their own look and uh he's done a great job with the brand um i wish him all the success in the world and yeah finally 2021's got to be the year i've got to get one it's driving me mad i've just i've just missed out i missed out on the ones i really wanted when i was when i was younger and poorer and couldn't afford to pull the trigger. And now I'm just kind of waiting for the right one. I think maybe the strange lights, uh, there's a couple of pieces left in both colors, I believe. At least there was last time I checked. I think I might pick up one of those, but I'm still vacillating between red and green. So who knows? Cool. And what is your percentage between passion and reason regarding collecting wristwatches? 
Oh, it's it's ninety uh, percent passion and ten percent reason. So I have very, very, very rarely um, bought a watch or even tried to buy a watch for speculative reasons. Um, I don't care what the market says. The watch I like wearing is supposed to retail for. I mean, why would I? You know, if you buy watches to sell them, do you even wear them? I mean, surely they're just like assets, like shares. I mean, they're, they're soulless. So I try not to do it. I will occasionally, I will occasionally go uh, down a route that I think is just too good value on both sides to ignore. So case in point, the Omega first Omega in space was recently discontinued. Okay. Yeah. Um, around that period of time, this watch, which I'd never considered before, um, got a lot of coverage on Fratello. And I was reading about it more. And I, you know, I always liked the hands. And I liked the size. Like I said, I got a small wrist. And I, I thought, hey, you know what? This will look pretty good on a force and a bracelet. But I was never really that attempt, that tempted to buy it at uh, full price. And then I saw in a recent sale over Christmas, um, Ernest Jones in England, they had one re- going for £3,000. No yeah, re- really, really, online uh, with 0% finance as well. So I thought, okay, this is a watch that I like. This is a watch that I could definitely see myself wearing. This is a watch I would like to add to my collection at some point. Would I have pulled the trigger at full price? No, I wouldn't. Did I think that it was an absolute no-brainer and a safe purchase at 3000 now that it's on the way out of the collection? I thought, yeah, hell yeah, it is. So I tried to buy it. I tried to. But regrettably, they were out of stock online. And this one piece that was showing... And I'm about to create a stampede here, but I'll do this for your listeners because I'm a generous man. The one piece that was showing was in a store in Inverness. Okay. They have it in Inverness. Now I said, can you call the store? Tell them to lock it down for me. I'll buy it. I said, I'm sorry, sir. We can't do that. The store is in a tier four zone. So it's closed. So there was nobody at the store to take a call. So I've sent them a speculative email saying, I'd quite like to buy this watch. Of course, it's no good I'm in Germany. I'd have to have it transferred to another store and then send a family member to pick it up. And goodness knows if the price will hold until the new year anyway. But if you're in Inverness and you want an Omega uh, Speedmaster, the uh, first Omega in space, get in line outside your local Ernest Jones. <laughs> as soon as those restrictions are over, with your credit card in hand, Debit would be better probably, uh, and just just make it yours because you can't go wrong at that price. Well, I'll I'll uh, concur with that because we sold out um, the day it was announced that uh, it just discontinued. Um, people went ballistic, and we had only one left. Uh, same thing happened uh, last week when Omega launched their new Moonwatch. So um, we we acquired a bulk of uh, the old references. Uh, put in a large order for the new references. So um, I concur with Rob. Listen to him, um, Rob. We're uh, we passed the thirty minutes mark, but I have I do want to ask you the last question um, for our listeners. Do you have one final tip for somebody who's new to the art of collecting wristwatches? Yeah, I do. Uh, it's kind of a two way tip. Um, firstly, listen to yourself. Um, don't let somebody tell you you need to buy something because it's going to be worth 10 times what it's worth today in five years' time. It doesn't matter. Like When you're, when you're new to watches, take your time feeling your way out around the industry. Buy the stuff you like. Don't listen to people sneering at you, telling you it's not worth it. You'll figure that out in time if they're right. Uh, you, you can do it all yourself. Um, 
Second thing, in the same vein, don't spend more than you can afford to lose. I, I approach watchmaking um, the same way I approach gambling. <laughs> I've given up gambling, but I'm yet to shake the watchmaking habit. But you know, never never bet more than you can afford to lose. Basically, don't overextend yourself for a purchase. Yes, I know. I said you know, opportunism is what defines my collecting habits these days. But that's after many years of being in the game and having uh, accrued enough disposable income to to really have a go at it. Um, in the early days, you have to be more creative, especially if you're if you're if you're low on funds. You have to think sideways a little bit. Look for the stuff you like. Maybe start a micro collection focused on something like Casio G-Shocks. You know that has a great following that's relatively affordable um, that will you know stand the test of time as well. And they'll still be fun to wear when you do own a Langer or you do own a Chepek or a Patek, whatever. So th- those are my two two bits of advice. Like listen to your heart. And uh, and don't uh, financially cripple yourself. <laughs> very very valuable and uh, very good tips. Thank you so much, Rob. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Um, I know we can fill hours of uh, airwaves uh, by chatting. I hope I can uh, invite you back for a future episode. For now, I want to say thank you. My pleasure. Speak soon. Take care. And thank you all for listening. If you have any questions that you want to ask Rob, Just post them and I'll make sure he and sees them and replies. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Art of Collecting Wristwatches by Ace Jewelers. This is the end of the podcast. Um, If you want to listen to more episodes, go to anchor.fm slash Ace Jewelers. And don't forget to rate our series with five stars. Thank you and have a good one.